1: from the features staff at the Columbus Dispatch. This is Life in the 614. Hi and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith. Assistant Features Editor at The Dispatch, and I'm here in studio today with my colleague, music reporter and Alfred Hitchcock aficionado, Julia Aller. I mentioned this last part, even though I know it's something that Hitchcock would never do, lower the suspense level. Still, I think it's revealing little to say that we're going to devote this podcast to Hitchcocktober, a celebration of the master of suspense at the Gateway Film Center, which will show 10 different classics by Hitchcock over the next month. The bigger question is, what other twists and turns do we have in store for this installment of Life in the the 614. Before we get to that, I should mention that there are some things you could be doing over the next week, other than grabbing a tub of popcorn and watching The Birds on Sunday, or North by Northwest on October 3rd. Cartoon Crossroads Columbus will celebrate all things illustrated Friday through Sunday, with the main speaker being cartoonist Lynn Johnston of For Better or For Worse, who will appear Friday at the Wexner Center for the Arts. And coffee lovers can espresso their love for the dark brewed beverage during the annual Columbus Coffee Fest at Ohio Village, where guests can sample a variety of roasts. There are events on both Saturday and Sunday. For some caffeine addicts, a day without coffee may be a real horror show. But like I said, the Gateway series on Hitchcock puts everything in perspective. To help us get a better understanding of what Hitchcock meant to the thriller and horror genres, and why that murder of crows in the birds was so, well... Murderous, we've sought the help of John Hellman, a professor at Ohio State University who's taught courses about Hitchcock. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us today. (laughs) Hi, Ryan. So it's almost Hitchcock-Tober. Are you excited? I am
0: always excited. I'm always delighted that the Gateway does that, Hitchcock-October. Yeah, it's a great idea. So
1: the Gateway is going to be showing 10 classics as part of the film series. There's going to be, and I'll list them: The Birds, North by Northwest, Rope. Strangers on a Train, Vertigo, To Catch a Thief, Dial M for Murder, Notorious, Rear Window, and Psycho. And I'm curious, well, from your yeah, perspective, if you had to add one more, which one would it be and why?
0: Oh my gosh, I should have written down each one. You <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, oh my gosh, let me think. Um, I'm not sure what you left out there. They, you had certainly greatest hits. I would for sure interest uh That's one of the most controversial Hitchcock films. You know, I think, you know, I didn't hear any British ones, and I think it'd be terrific to add blackmail.
1: Oh, interesting. What attracted you as a scholar to Hitchcock in the first place? Oh, my gosh. I've had
0: a lifelong love of Hitchcock. I mean, my earliest memories of watching Hitchcock were in the drive-in. I I feel like I must have been sitting next to my mother watching Rear Window. You know, it would not have been the first time it was released in 1954, but, you know, they must have been running at the drive-in later. But I remember my mother saying that man's crazy but clearly delighting in his films <laughs> and uh I've always loved Hitchcock and so you know when I went into you know, academic studies and getting my Ph.D., you know, there were, there was virtually nothing in the way of film programs in the universities. So I got my doctorate in English, you know, focused in modern literature. But I was always interested in film and uh, took advantage of any, you know, opportunity take a film course or whatever. But anyway, the point is I worked my way into teaching and writing on film. And, you know, Hitchcock was just a natural love. I was just absolutely attracted to it. You know, I think probably the best explanation for starters would be what Hitchcock himself said about why he did the kinds of films he did and that was he realized early as a child that he enjoyed being scared as long as in the back of his mind he knew he was actually safe. <laughs> and That's the experience of a scary film. You know, in this case, it, well, you know, it's really about suspense. It's about a kind of tingling excitement as opposed to some kind of, you know, blood and gore or shock and horror.
1: What do you think separated him from other filmmakers of his era?
0: You know, I think there's a a distinctive economy about his films. And what I mean by that, he carefully, carefully crafted them with the viewer in mind, you know, to create an experience. And when you watch those films, there's nothing slack about them. Nothing is wasted about them. Um, And I find they are just as effective with students today. Students will come into my uh, course on Hitchcock I'm teaching, you know, particularly when I'm teaching at a more survey level, and they're skeptical of films from that era. And and I'll I'll just quote what a student said to me last semester in my Hitchcock course when we were about three-fourths of the way through. He said, guys, he made it gender specific, he said, guys my age don't like films from that era, but we do like Psycho. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) uh, so, you know... I think, again, it's, it's just the city economy. But I'll tell you what happened in, in the history of Hitchcock's studies. You know, He was he was seen by American critics and English critics through most of his career as a great entertainer. They admired his craft, but they did not take him seriously as an artist. The French did, the French critics. But what became apparent, even to the American and, and British critics, to the point where now he's considered the supreme topic of film studies, the supreme artist of film studies, is that that concept, Concentration in this film is about a lot lot more than just creating suspenseful feelings. There's intense psychoanalytic and sociological and political, all, all sorts of ideas packed into the images and experiences he puts up there on the screen
1: so you know Hitchcock I think today is sort of seen as you know he kind of gets lumped into to the horror genre sometimes even though right, he's, because he's
0: really Frank not Ver- yeah, uh,
1: yeah so you know do you kind of think it's unfair that his movies kind of get relegated sometimes to you know being like Halloween appropriate you know I, I grew up watching Hitchcock in May so yeah
0: right you, you make an excellent point you know and I'll, I'll quote a student again I, I that's another comment I made this this one was from a female student and uh, she was in, in my office talking with her paper about me and, and she said you know when I signed up for this course my mother said what are you signing up for that for you know, that Hitchcock is all just this horror stuff you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and she said, I've been going, I'm telling her, it's not like that at all. You know, in fact, until Psycho came out, Hitchcock was not known as a horror director. He was not associated with, you know, blood and gore or shock. He was associated with not only with suspense, but with wit and with romance. And you know he's not—he's actually not only terrific at putting thriller elements of you know where you expect violence to event, at least to, at some point to be involved. He's terrific at putting romance on the screen. And when he was asked about this by an interviewer, his explanation was: "It's because I treat romance as another form of suspense." Hmm. And he was very tasteful about it. He was known for that. And his explanation was: "I don't like actresses, you know, that are like sex bombshell." Else like Marilyn Monroe or Bridget Bardot, you know, because there's no suspense. <laughs> you know, he says what's really interesting is the anticipation and the mystery of you know of how this might develop and what she's really like and if you, and if you go like to, for instance to his, his favorite actresses and he put on screen and turned into different versions of what what is known as the Hitchcock blonde they're known for being a very elegant very quiet but you know witty dialogue but they're, they're particularly known for having their hair like uh, put up on on top of their head and you know tightly bound as if, you know, there's some sort of mystery here. What would she be like, you know, if she actually let her guards down, you know, et cetera. As far as your question about where it's unfair, let me say, that's because of Psycho. And, you know, Psycho got such a tremendous response. And uh, one major book on, on Hitchcock, Work of Criticism, by a man named Leslie Brill, it's called The Hitchcock Romance. And, He's actually very put out over over this image of Hitchcock as this sort of dark character, you know, with weird obsessions and, and, and so on. And he said, Hitchcock made, he pointed out, this is really hard to refute, he said, Hitchcock made 53 feature films over the course of a career that spanned you know, the better part of the 20th century. And it's only late in his career that he made Vertigo and Psycho, but it's because we're so obsessed with Vertigo, we, the audience are so obsessed with Vertigo and Psycho, which are actually, you know, real exceptions in uh, in the 53 films in terms of all this kind of darkness, that it really tells more about the audience today, including film critics, than it does about Alfred Hitchcock's own psyche or personality.
1: Yeah, why do you think viewers, especially when the films first came out, latched on to to Vertigo and Psycho so tightly and...
0: Yeah, well, you know, let me go. Vertigo was not actually a huge success with the audience when it came out, so I'll go back to that in a moment. But Psycho was a huge success. And, you know, I mean, there's more. Than, I think there has to be more than one answer. It's, it's hard to pin down one exactly. One thing, though, we'd start with is it was completely unexpected. It was completely innovative. You know, when that student made this comment about, you know, a young student today saying, we still we do like Psycho, and I said, yeah, well, the thing is, it's not like a film from that era. I mean, Psycho isn't like a film from this era. Psycho is really like an avant-garde film, an experimental film, which is very much the spirit that Hitchcock made it in. He did very daring things in that, you know, and I don't want to do plot spoilers you know, <laughs> for, for the people listening, so I, I will get. But, but there was a, a very, a very daring thing he did in terms of the plot, a very daring thing he, he did in terms of the usual experience watching a Hollywood film of you identify with a character and, and you get to identify with that same character throughout the film. But on another level, and again, I don't want to do plot spoilers, but he did push the edge of the envelope in terms of hollywood censorship at the at the time and there were about he managed to get the hollywood production seal you know but he in various ways managed to break about 10 taboos you know different ones in terms of what could be on the screen and just to give you an example of what censorship was like then he showed a, a toilet flush <laughs> and it had not been put on screen before in the in the american film but you know what can I say? That film still really gets delivers the thrills and the shocks. But like like all of his films, uh, but this is certainly one of the you know, one of the greatest, it's got kind of unexpected psychoanalytic depths to it. And that's why people can come back to it time and again and, and why film scholars keep writing about it. And it gets, you know, it gets taught as one of the masterpieces of cinema. As far as Vertigo, Vertigo did not, it only broke even at the box office when it came out. And for Hitchcock, that's not a, that was not a commercial success. But the French film critics were fascinated with it from the beginning and its reputation really got going big time in uh, the 1980s because Hitchcock had held back five of his films I forget he like bought them personally or whatever he had it set up so that they could not be shown until, like, after his death, and, you know, was, I think, up to his daughter. You know, he apparently thought of it as a kind of insurance policy for his daughter. But when Vertigo and Rear Window and uh, Rope and there were a couple others, Trouble with Harry, were re released around 1980 or so, they actually played one per month in theaters in major cities around the country, and they all got re reviewed. And this is when Vertigo's reputation really just started going through the Roof. And, you know, I think here, here's the, the first thing I said about Vertigo. Hitchcock himself, from the very beginning in interviews, said North by Northwest is for me an entertainment, but Vertigo is a very personal film. And it's widely felt that in so many ways, Vertigo is, he's putting on the screen a kind of confession of his own uh, erotic obsessions, and particularly with the whole idea of the Hitchcock Blonde, because this is, this is not a major plot spoiler at all to say that, you know, in Vertigo, you have a theme of dressing up a woman to be a replica of a woman you've lost, <laughs> you know, an ideal. And uh, that seems to have been a very personal theme for him, this kind of Pygmalion theme of turning a living woman into your personal ideal. But as you can imagine, that material really interests feminist film scholars. (laughs) You know, who, you know, they don't like the implications of that, obviously. But they have found found this really interesting material to analyze in terms of trying to get into ideas, you know, masculinity in our culture, ideas about masculinity and femininity,
1: etc. Can we turn to the birds for a moment? I feel like uh, of all the ones that I've seen, that more than any of the others sort of begs for some sort of larger meaning, but it's a larger meaning yes. that I can never wrap my head around. <laughs> I'm wondering if you can maybe unpack that a little bit for us.
0: Yeah, the birds, it actually has come to be my favorite film, and I, I have published on the birds. I mean, no, you, you've got it right there. This What's so fascinating about that film, and at the same time frustrating, is that the birds are obviously meant to symbolize stars something large something you know of a philosophical or some kind of scale but they seem to be a completely empty symbol you know? They don't seem to be tied to anything anything directly. And, of course, he leaves it unresolved. And I think, you know, the first thing, that they seem to, on a basic level, they seem to represent the idea of chaos, and the chaos could erupt at any time from what we normally just take for granted. I mean, that, that I think we can establish. There have been articles published arguing that the birds are attacking. Uh, you know, it's obviously like a kind of... Um, fantasy premise, you know, almost sci-fi kind of premise, but one argument is the reason the birds attack is because of something in the psyche of the, the main character, Melanie, who when she comes into town. You know, the bird attacks start when she comes into the town. Others have argued that the birds are attacking because that somehow the mind of the mother of the man that Melanie has come up there pursuing and who doesn't want him getting involved with the woman, that somehow her unconscious is causing the birds to attack There are other versions Of that And they're all Based on you know Some sort of Extrasensory perception Kind of fantasy premise That go for like Psychoanalytic Kind of Freudian readings My own reading Of the film And I'm not saying It, it stands In necessarily Complete contradiction To the psychoanalytic ones But my own reading Of the, of the film Is that there are All sorts of Ways in, in the film In which There are very They're sort of Submerged But there are References There are little connections to the, the sort of state of anxiety at the time in the United States over, you know, this was the Kennedy era. This was the one film he made and released during the Kennedy era. And on the surface, things seem wonderful in the United States, but there was a fear of nuclear war. There, there was concerns about, you know, with the civil rights movement about what kind of violence, or you know, might wind up resulting in you know the struggles that were going on there. There was also clearly, uh, we can see now, I look back and see there were rumblings among generational rumblings among the young, you know, that was, you know, by the end of the 60s would break out in, you know, the revolts against Vietnam, et cetera, on campuses. And there are various ways, I think in a number of ways, this film kind of foreshadows all that. And I think if you look at Hitchcock's settings for the bird attacks, they're centered around kind of, you know, 1950s ideal of the home, famously around the school where the children are and then in the town square. So you've got kind of the, they're very abstracted, but they're like iconic settings of the the fundamental institutions of of our society. And in each case, the birds make attacks on those settings. Just to give you one example, on the famous scene at the school, that's sitting up on a hilltop, Melanie goes there to take a little girl out of the school that she winds up having to pick her up. She winds up having to sit on a bench and wait. And inside, while she waits on the bench outside, she's sitting right in front of the playground with a jungle gym, you know, behind her. You know, the kids would play on. The kids inside are perfectly ordered and they're singing a song at the behest of the, you know, of the teacher. And while Melanie is sitting there listening to that song, birds begin to land on the jungle bars right behind her. And, you know, eventually it winds up being full of these birds and when the little kids come out of the school the birds attack them and it's you know one of the great scenes of the film is they're (laughs) running down the hill and i you know the birds are crows you know and i think the effect of it you think about the birds have landed where the kids when they are allowed their recess from order go out there and play on those that jungle gym and show their sort of wilder (laughs) wilder side that we're at work, you know, the school and the families are at work civilizing. And so, you can, you know, you can see these birds as kind of like the unconscious of the children or the natural side of the children that this society is trying to repress and get under control. But the birds has got great detail on it, and much more than most of this film. Hitchcock acknowledged that himself and spent much more time on the film than, than he did just about any, any of his others.
1: I would make a joke about a murder of crows, but I'll try and refrain <laughs> Um, for a lighter question, I'm, I've always loved his cameos in his films. Oh, yes, right. I'm wondering if you have a favorite. Oh, my gosh. Let me think a minute.
0: That is a toughie. I know one that I delight in, Strangers on a Train, early 1950s Hitchcock classic. You know, this film is all about doubling. It's all, it's all about uh, the main character of the film has another man on it that he just happens to meet, you know, coincidentally, casually on a random on a train car. This man start coming up with this wild idea that, hey, let's trade murders. I'll trade, you know, the wife who's, you know, divorcing you and, and is causing you all kinds of trouble, and you murder my dad. And that way nobody will catch either one of us because, they'll, you know, they won't be able to trace down the motivation. And the guy just thinks, oh this is, you know, this guy's just nutty. You know, he doesn't take it seriously. But it turns out the, the guy who proposed it did take it seriously. So this whole thing is about one person acting as like a double of you. And again, it's got psychoanalytic implications that maybe that person is like a, a repressed part of, of you. Okay, when the main character, played by Farley Granger, gets off the train from this encounter, Hitchcock passes right by him at the same door getting on. And Hitchcock, who was quite heavy at that point, and is in a suit, is carrying a great big base musical instrument in a case the music case you know that had the bass inside literally doubles his own silhouette if you're following what I'm describing. And he's, he's getting onto the train with it with difficulty because this is not like carrying a harmonica, I mean, it's <laughs> a great big difficult instrument. And so you've got, this is the key thing, is, as the years went on and the cameo became something that the audience looked for and expected, you will find in almost every case, Hitchcock doesn't just show up in the film, he does it in a way that in some way comments on or wittily echoes the theme of the film. You know, the idea basic idea of the film. And there, there it is the
1: doubling. Interesting. I guess maybe to wrap up, I'd be interested in your thoughts on one, how his work holds up today and what his legacy is today. Yeah,
0: it holds up brilliantly. And I mean, I I mean, one, there is literally a, you know, what magazine we call sometimes like we call an industry and, you know, in this case, the Hitchcock industry. I mean, there are just an enormous number of books that keep being written about his work, all sorts of books, you know, including quite a number that are devoted to, you know, one film. Only. And I can tell you in, in the So there's this incredible academic interest You know, we just keep finding rich things to write about Secondly, I mean, I can tell you personal testimonial that the students really love his work. They really respond to it. I mean, that Hitchcock course is so much fun to teach because the students discover very early that they really like these films and they really like talking about them and writing about them. And even in this Noir film Noir course I'm teaching right now, where you know there's, which is a body of, of work, of all, by a uh, you know, large number of directors, I'm already finding students when they have an option from a list I give them to write about. A number of them are starting to zero in on anything on their directed by Alfred Hitchcock <laughs> because they've already discovered they love it. But uh, you know, it completely holds up today. But as far as I think you were talking about his influence, was that the second? Yeah, part? his legacy. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it is everywhere. I mean, it's hard. It would be harder to find a director not today from 19. 19- 60s on, it would be harder to find a director not influenced by Hitchcock in some way than to find one who has not. Uh, they, um, they often acknowledge this, and I tell you, those of us who know the films well will often be watching anything from a, a really serious movie by a major director to a TV movie, or even you know, like, an, like an HBO series, and we'll see something that is, that's either what you could call a tribute to, some, to a, a famous scene in Hitchcock or some scene in Hitchcock, or you could call it a ripoff, depending (laughs) depending on how you looked at it. But they rework his work all the time. And in some cases, it's being done, and done repetitively by different directors, certain iconic scenes, in a way that tells us, I think, that certain iconic scenes of Hitchcock films have become something like mythological sites in our culture. And, I mean, there's something like, it's a place that we keep going back to. And take the shower scene inside. I go I mean, there are, there are any number of movies that have in some way referred to that shower scene. And there was actually an excellent, I forget, I think it was maybe Netflix who did it, but a, 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 like what, like a four or five season TV show called Bates Motel. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, which I, I, think, I thought was terrific. I went to it with skepticism, but I, I thought it was brilliantly done. And, you know, so, but Rear Window has been reworked a number of times. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the great films of the 1960s, that's actually my own research specialization in the 1960s, and one of the great defining films of that period, uh, the Italian uh, director uh, Michelangelo, made a film called Blow Up, uh, set in Swinging London, and the pivotal scene in that film is in a park, but the main character is a photojournalist, and I won't go into details, but in effect, it, it kind of reworks the fundamental idea of rear window.
1: Oh, Interesting. I appreciate you sharing all these insights with them. We'll definitely keep them in mind as we go hit some of those movies yes, this coming I,
0: I will tell you, in fact, it was occurring to me as we were talking here that I think it was Julia who was you know, raising the issue is it really fair for him to be identified <laughs> with like Halloween? Yeah. Some of the things that we've talked about in films that are not thought of as horror films, but I think you, you can see it gets into sufficiently weird territory. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you could call it Halloween for adults.
1: <laughs> there we go. Well, John, thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking you to so
0: you. Much. Hey, it was up. Hey, your pleasure talking to the two of you. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Sure. Bye bye. Bye.
1: And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614.
0: Just going to run this